Hello, and welcome to Trinity's Decisions in Life Sciences, the podcast that brings together industry experts to discuss the important decisions being made today and the impact that those decisions are having on the healthcare ecosystem of tomorrow. Hello, everyone. My name is Gary McWalters, president at TGAS Advisors, a division of Trinity Life Sciences. And today we're going to be joined by a panel of four experts from the TGAS Advisory team. So I'd ask that each of the folks on the phone, please uh, introduce themselves, starting with Kim. Kim? Hi, everyone. Thank you, Gary. I am Kim Woodauer. I'm a director of field operations here at TGAS Advisors, probably one of the newest members to the team today. I've been in pharmaceuticals, though, well over 20 years, starting in sales and spending most of my career in field operations, both at large pharma and at small pharma. Hey everyone, Brian Valmecki. I lead our commercial data management solution for TGAS Advisors. I've been with TGAS for a little over 10 and a half years, spent um, 15 with a small company now called IQVIA, um, have been attached to around and working with data, data services, and data offerings within the industry for a number of years. Jim Castello, I lead our incentive compensation practice at TGAS Advisors. I have I've been with TGAS for almost 14 years, uh, going on in 15 actually, and uh, been involved in pharmaceutical sales incentives for the better part of 25 years. Hello everyone, my name is Ken McDermott. I'm one of the executive management advisors here with TGAS. Been with TGAS for about three years, and prior to TGAS I spent 25 years at Janssen, and it's great to be part of, uh, of this podcast today. Okay, thanks everyone. A few weeks back, we had nearly 200 biopharma executives representing 100 companies come together to learn, share, and network at our summit in Philadelphia. Many topics were discussed. One of the most important topics that discussed was the changing to the commercial model. I guess we'll start there and I'd ask, would each of you take a few minutes and share some thoughts and highlights from your sessions relating to the commercial model and the changes? Sure, Yari, I'll jump in. So from a field operations perspective, at this summit, we really talked about how much change happened during COVID. Um, everything that field operations needed to change so quickly, just changing on a dime. And then where is it moving now? Is it reverting back? And what everyone agreed was that, yes, it is starting to revert back in terms of can our field representatives see physicians and can they get face-to-face -face versus virtual. But unfortunately, the access challenges that started, they're continuing to blow up. So now field operations is working with our partners to focus on how do we break this access challenge code? Do we bring in different field types? Do we leverage MSLs? Do we change what we're looking at from a frequency and, and a reach perspective, it's really heightened urgency to figure all of this out. But with that said, from a field operations perspective, our job is to keep the train on its track. We are the experts in IC sampling, targeting, zip to tear, alignments, on and on about everything that pharmaceutical companies need in order to keep everything running along. We just need to do it now with a lot more complexity in place. Thanks, Kim. I'll jump in next, if that's okay. Um, sure. So if the job of field operations is to keep the trains on the track, the job of the data management teams is to actually build the stations and the tracks that those trains run on. Um, so a lot of what we talk about um, with the new commercial models really was something that emerged where all of a sudden digital data became extremely important. 
And a lot of the teams are now focusing attention, effort, and expertise towards how do we make all of the data that's being generated through our non-personal promotional efforts really tie well together with what is being done through the personal promotion efforts of field teams. And Kim, to your point, when we talk about field teams, it's no longer just about the promotional reps. It's also about the MSLs. It's about the field reimbursement managers. It's about the nurse educators. It's about a host of additional role types that have now emerged within the industry. And it's created a lot of data complexity for data management teams in order to be able to bring in a lot of new types of data, um, the expansion of data that's even being made available in the marketplace that now needs to be integrated and tied together. And it's really had them take a step back and say, wow, there are more stakeholders using the data and data infrastructure than we've seen before. There is a real push towards how do we maximize and optimize the use of that data, including for the omni-channel fronts. And it's really driving a lot of new moves towards what's happening in the IT realms as well with what they're referring to as digitization, not to be confused with the digital that's being done from Omnichannel in order to build out new capabilities, new enhancements, enable the um, push towards AIML and enhancements that that's expected to bring to do the next best action, next best suggestion efforts. So Brian, uh, just to, sort of pivoting off the point you made around, uh, both you and Kim made about about roles, um, from an incentive comp perspective, that is really the the, the primary area we've seen uh, the commercial model present itself. Uh, you know, although incentives is consistently uh, asked to provide innovation um, around incentive compensation. Um, most of our stakeholders continue to be satisfied with um, the tried and true plan. So that we're not seeing changes to incentive plans necessarily in support of new commercial model, but we are seeing additional roles being brought on to field sales incentive plans. We recently completed our annual incentive compensation landscape. And in that survey of 50 plus pharmaceutical companies, we found that about a third of them are deploying roles like thought leader liaisons, like clinical nurse educators or field reimbursement managers. And about a third of those are actually putting those individuals on a variable comp plan or a field sales type incentive plan. So again, the complexity of what incentive comp teams are being asked to deal with has gone up in, in terms of additional roles to cover. We're not actually seeing additional metrics and additional measures filter in to, uh, to incentive compensation plans just yet. So, Jim, that's a terrific point. And, and one thing I'll add um, the part of the summit that I was involved in, it, in, it encompassed the senior leaders in commercial operations. And one thing that they all agreed upon is as the commercial model continues to evolve, and it does continue to evolve, it's far from being settled, that not only non-promotional promotion and sales reps promoting, the integration of these matrix organizations and how to support them is a really, really key issue and a challenge. Um, not only from the data side and from what the field operations functions are trying to do, but trying to get alignment in the organizations themselves into the directions that these models need to go has been an interesting struggle, but yet a challenge for them as well. So we'll only see how this thing continues to evolve. But right now, it is just that. It's not settled and companies continue to try to push the envelope into what these models look like and how to engage the most important customers. Good stuff, Ken. And thanks, everyone. 
Um, we also talked a lot about capabilities during the summit. What are some of the capabilities, whether new or existing, um, that organizations need so they aren't left behind as the commercial model continues to evolve? Brian, any thoughts on that? Yeah, thanks, Gary. Um, you know, in, in the room that um, I participated in, and I had a chance to sit through a couple of different rooms, one of the number one things that I heard um, consistently as a capability that's needed is how do you make more of the data available across more of the teams? It, it is really that um, how do I provide access? How do I enable people to be able to make smarter decisions? And, and that is a place where a lot of organizations are really struggling to figure out how do we better enable access to data? And it really requires developing capabilities around the data catalogs, the data lineage, the metrics inventories, to be able to effectively communicate, here's what's available and how you should or could be using that data set. The other thing that comes into play is there is this push um, within organizations, and a lot of them have been doing it, is the heavy investment towards the AIML, right? Artificial intelligence, machine learning capabilities that they want to deploy. And while a lot of it is the forward-looking, hey, how can we make um, better decisions for field teams or how do we better enable our omni-channel approaches? The really good opportunity that may be missed in some of this is, could some of that technology be used in order to support doing better quality checks of data, helping to find insights on data before it actually has to run through processes to better inform teams of what might be out there and what might be available. But all of this is predicated on having a good foundational data strategy. And as I've been talking to multiple clients and having conversations, there is this real challenge that exists within the industry around defining truly what is data strategy, who should own it, what should it encompass? How do you execute it? And it's just been an interesting conversation to be part of and I think a place where the capability really needs to develop if organizations truly want to provide access to more information. And then I'll, I'll wrap with um, you know two really big things is, one, the omni-channel data and the push to bring all of that data in, better integrate it and make it available and enable the organization to be smarter with it. But then that's also, um, playing off of the need to do more with affiliations data as organizations start to take a better look at account-based selling as they try and think about how do we evaluate the value of institutions, networks, ACOs, whatever it may be. Um, it's one of those places where they really are starting to put focus and really need to develop their capabilities of how do you manage and effectively use affiliations. Um, Brian, that's just a, it's such a great point you make around some of the functional capabilities that are changing um, in pharma and in commercial operations. One of the one of the biggest things that these senior leaders are also tackling is this skill set and the capabilities of their people. So you had mentioned omnichannel. You mentioned the advancement in analytics like NBA. Um, the skill set of the folks that that they need and that they're looking for to bring into organizations has just been elevated. Um, they're not the same skill set and competencies that we saw um, prior to the pandemic. So as functional capabilities change, the skill set of folks that are doing those jobs and doing those functions has also been elevated. So it's really interesting how how that has been has been moving forward, and just to struggle to find um, to find folks that have that had that skill set in today's in today's commercial operations world. 
And to add to that point, Ken, in the uh, field ops room at the summit, we really took a deep dive onto Nextbex action. Um, both you and Brian talk about the insights that we're trying to pull through and the skill sets that the field needs. And what was a really interesting conversation was that not everyone defines next best action the same way. You would think it's a common term, we're all used to saying it, but what does it mean? And it seems like there are two um, really predominant schools of thought. So a group of attendees said, well, next best action means that I, I being home office, I being the reporting team, I being the analytics team, goes through the data for the field and pulls out the insights for, for them, sends it to them so they can see it and they don't have to spend their time going through reports and analytics. Then there was another uh, group that said, no, no, no. What this means is I am pulling in new data. I am pulling in claims data. I'm pulling in lab data. And I am going through this data and finding where there's a potential patient and sending that information to the field member with the HCP name and the message based on that information. Either way, whatever school of thought you're in, what we're seeing is Nexus action is no longer something on the horizon. It's here. And, you know, to be playing, you need to have this integrated into your structure. And and Kim, you know, when you when you start talking about things like next best action and upgrading the the skill set of the representative, we're certainly seeing an incentive comp. Um, we're seeing sort of this skill set and capabilities in a couple of areas. One is, you know, incentive comp teams and leaders really need to understand how to engage stakeholders in a behaviors and outcomes discussion rather than a measures and metrics discussion, right? There's so much data. There's so much access to information today that um, too often when we engage in incentive compensation discussions, we talk about things like what measure do you want? What, um, what data set should we use? And that's really not where the conversation that should start. The conversation really needs to start with what's the outcome you're expecting? What is the what is this individual that we're designing this incentive plan responsible for? So more and more, we're, we're seeing our network look for those kinds of skills in their um, incentive comp team to be able to really design thoughtful um, and impactful incentive plans, um, and it's 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 a and it's a rare it's a rare thing. So it's it's certainly somewhere where incentive comp teams have had to up uh, upskill their their individuals to be able to do that. The the second place where we're seeing capabilities come into play, and it, it's a little less about capabilities, and it's more about you know what's what's happening in the market where you have to be concerned about being left behind. Um, one things we've seen is that the competition for sales talent has significantly increased. Um, and how is that manifesting itself in incentive comp? Well, one of the areas that it's manifesting itself is target pay is increasing. And in some cases, dramatically, we're seeing roles like um, oncology and rare disease experience, 10, 15, 20% increases in target pay. Um, that's not insignificant. So one of the things that we're encouraging our network to do is really take a hard look at um, enabling uh, the attracting of sales talent through the design and implementation of their incentive plans. That's something we haven't really had to do very much in the last several years because there's been a lot of um, uh, 
a, a lot of consistency from company to company. We're starting to see that that's not necessarily the case. So this competition for additional skills, both within the incentive comp team and this competition for talent, uh, from for sales talent, that incentive comp can um, help uh, help mitigate are the two areas where we're really seeing a lot of activity. You know, that's really interesting, Jim, because we had a similar conversation in the field operations room. Um, our network was talking about the role of field force effectiveness. And although some companies have had it for some time, most companies don't have this role or they're thinking about developing this role. So it's interesting, the idea of not only the sales, the field role, but also the internal team came up in multiple uh, rooms at the summit. But for field operations, it's this well, do we need the role of field effect, field force effectiveness, or do we just need to make sure the responsibilities are being housed in the role? And it's funny, there aren't, there isn't a role with more different definitions than field force effectiveness. Correct. Although having had the role <laughs> right? myself, I feel like I can define it, but totally agree. I, I think really the idea of that cross-functional field ops project management is the main aspect of that role, but also the alignment to strategic objectives. But you are correct. It is a, uh, I think it's a puzzle we're, we're trying to slowly figure out. Yep, it's it's certainly not it's certainly not one thing that can be um, can be easily defined. Although I think Brian would agree that the there there's such an opportunity for um, measuring field force effectiveness through the access to data, through the utilization of things like next best action, and how it's how it's being pulled through, and what the feedback you're getting from representatives to improve that. I think field force effectiveness is is going. I think it's going to be critical. It's just funny that it's uh, it, you ask twelve people and you get twelve different definitions. I used to say the same thing about market share. Yes. <laughs> I think what's clear <laughs> is we all need to collaborate. Our teams we do best when we work together well. So that is the That's yes. For sure. I always joke. I don't care what the definition is. Let's just all call it the same thing. But it, it's funny, Jim, because you, you mentioned that with the field force effectiveness and um, right the data that's required in order to measure it. And I don't think there's alignment, right? So just as, as many definitions exist, the data which gets included as being a part of what is included in measurement of field force effectiveness is still something that's um, very open. And we talk about omni-channel a lot as well. Um, but when we, we talk about this, we still are really talking about promotional rep and activity, um, not necessarily the broader sense of, hey, how do we measure to make sure that we're getting full effectiveness of all of our field forces? So it's an interesting dynamic. Um, yeah, it's just, it, I agree. It's just fascinating. Um, it's fascinating. You know, we, we go charging down these paths and in some cases, in some ways, we don't define the direction we want to go. We're just, we're just chart forward is yeah, good. Yeah. I, I think the same can be said for um, next best action, which we've all talked about, right. As a component, I, I think it was fun. I got to sit in on the field ops room and right. The conversation came up and somebody said, nah, in our company, we call it next best, next best suggestion. Because in essence, really, we're just making suggestions. There is no, there is no push to action quite yet. Right, so it's it's a little bit of a misused term, 
in the way a lot of companies think about it. But it it is an interesting dynamic. Well, and as as I think as we were talking about a week or so ago, you know, next best action is not a is not a specific thing in and of itself. It is a it is a capability that you bring to bear that you then evolve as you move on. That's what the best companies are doing. The, 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 the good thing isn't implementing next best action. The good thing is building a next best actions capability and then continuing to refine it. Our biggest success stories with next best action are companies that have been doing it for four or five years and continuing to refine it, continuing to advance that capability in a way that is actually having a positive impact on their commercial results. That's the magic of those kinds of things. Not that you've implemented it. It's that what do you do with it afterwards? So I think this is a, I, I think things like next best action are enormously powerful and they are, they are here to stay, but they are not an, it, it, next, implementing next, next, next best action is not the end of the, it's not the end of the story. It's the beginning. Very well said, Jim. And maybe on that point, I'll kind of pivot the conversation a little bit um, because another topic that was discussed in great depth across our summit meetings was metrics. So in your discussions with your clients, are companies redefining their key performance metrics to align with some of the changes we've been discussing so far? Kim, why don't you start us off on that topic? Yeah, no, absolutely. This has been a conversation we've been having now, I think, for years and years and years. What are the right metrics and how are they changing? And in field operations, we still are talking about reach and frequency. Um, I think, you know, reach especially, it's here to stay. But the pivot is now, uh, what is the value of the metrics? And what is the value of looking at reach from just the sales rep to the HCP? Or are we looking at a more holistic approach? Are we looking at all of the channels that all the companies are now um, using to reach the customer and looking at the total corporate reach on the customer through all channels or just the field rep reach? We still are looking at just the field rep reach, but we are starting to look at that more holistic re- approach. And I think that you're going to see that become more and more pre- prevalent as the most important metric as we move forward. Yeah, I think, Kim, that's an interesting um, place to start. And one of the things I think a lot of organizations are struggling with when we start talking about shifting reach and frequency is, is the data there yet to support rethinking about how do I engage in the appropriate channel? How do I make sure I'm using the right touch points in order to effectively engage customers? Um, they're just not ready yet with the data and the systems in order to be able to do a lot of that. But it is definitely a place a lot of them want to go. And I think it's interesting when I sat through in the conversation that happened within the field ops room, um, when the question was put out about reach and frequency, the first place everyone, or the majority of the room, I should say, went was to think about reach and frequency as a measure of our field rep to a customer. And not many of them, it was a very small handful of people who said within the organization, they're having the conversations and they're starting to do measurement of what it means from a total company perspective. So it's still something they're, they're not quite there yet with. Uh, agreed. They're not quite there. What is what what is interesting, and I, I'm sure you heard as well, Brian, when you were when you were our guest visitor in the room, is 
you know, we spent so much time on virtual activity during the pandemic. And that was so important. Did you have a virtual call? Was it with with video, without video, just on phone? And it it was an amazing pivot that FieldOps made to collect this information. And now we're moving away from it again. Um, however, what we really heard over and over again was this ROI, ROI on everything, ROI on calls, ROI on sampling, ROI on next best action. People are saying it's, it's not enough to just measure the activity, but we need to find out if the activity is making an impact. And, you know, Kim, that's a great, that's a great lead in, um, you know, we, we see that manifest itself in incentive compensation through things like MBO plans, right? Effective MBO plans, because as we go to some of these roles and we're adding some of these roles through the new commercial model, um, and very often for a variety of reasons, companies are uncomfortable putting traditional incentive comp metrics, sales, goal attainment, commission, what have you, but they want to put MBOs together. Um, and the big challenge that we have with MBOs is getting them specific and measurable enough. Um, you know, the, I, I, I regularly engage customers with in discussions around MBOs. And, you know, the, the, there's no more toothless MBO than, oh, let's measure your collaboration. Well, okay, <laughs> let's, uh, let's not. Let's measure, let's actually do something that requires collaboration to achieve right? That's the key. It's putting metrics, measures and metrics in place that draw, that can only be achieved through the desired behaviors as opposed to measuring the desired behaviors. It's incentives at their core need to drive behaviors and outcomes. And what we do too often in incentives is we drive, we drive to behaviors. Your example about reach and frequency it's not about reach and frequency, it's not effective reach and frequency. I'd much rather you make 12 great calls than 50 crappy calls. So what's, how do you figure out, and this is the challenge our network is, is, is struggling with and continues to, is how do you figure out what, how I know it's a good call? Um, and that's something that we hear about in incentives all the time is, and if, and we, we do see companies becoming more and more um, open to putting those real objectives in place. And again, it goes back to what I said earlier, you know, can we talk about behaviors and outcomes and not measures? What do you expect your field reimbursement managers to do? And let's measure them. Um, it actually forces that conversation about what these individuals are responsible for. What are the expectations of the role? And I think that's just becoming a richer and richer conversation that we have to have about all roles, irrespective of whether they're new to incentive comp or not. But your discussion around, around reach and frequency is so interesting because again, yes, as a but as a means to an end, reach and frequency doesn't tell us how well they're doing. Um, and that's, I think, buried in what you were talking about is, is companies trying to figure out how to make that leap to what, what is, you know, what is a good reach? What is good frequency? What is a good call? I think that, uh, you know, the comp as companies try to figure that out and are willing to put a stake in the ground, I think that's where we're, we're going to see, we're going to see some significant change. I agree. I agree. Jim, yeah, that's such a that's such a great point, Jim. And and you stress it a couple of times. It's where these senior leaders are were challenged and where they're where they're really focusing their attention is is engagement. And 
you know, when 60-some thousand representatives left the field in March a couple of years ago, engagement took on a whole new meaning. Um, hence, measuring that engagement when the field was reintroduced to their customers live and all the different channels that have been leveraged, measuring engagement across everything that you had mentioned, Jim, and Kim had mentioned, has really been the struggle. It's not for lack of KPIs, key performance in, in indices. There, there, there are plentiful but which ones are the ones that give you the best view into engagement? And if the engagement is really, really good, then performance of the brands tend to tend to be recognized. It's it's that engagement that has really been trying to measure that engagement has been really the challenge across all of these different KPIs. Yeah, and I, I think Ken, that's one of the things a lot of um, teams have started doing a better job of is actually building that library of these are the KPIs, here's how we define how they're calculated, here's how we define how they're measured, so that there is consistency, a better understanding of how they should be used and, and how they um, help support evaluating what's happening. Uh, but I, I will share a, a funny thing that we all have experienced in our careers. We we talk about all these KPIs as, as something that matters, but it really comes back to, to Jim with the IC measures, right? Because I think the first report every field rep looks at is their performance to goal. <laughs> yes, it is. And if performance to goal is good, it doesn't matter what other reports you've delivered, what other metrics you want them to look at. Nobody's paying any attention, right? As long as I'm doing well on IC, I stop. You know, Brian, I, I, and I, and I, and I, at some level, it gives me satisfaction to know that's the case. I feel like as a, as a, uh, a as a chosen field, incentive comp will stick around. Um, but you know, as a, as a, as an analytic business person, I've always been a little dismayed at that. That you know, well, my reach is good. Well, how do you know your reach is good? Because my incentive comp is good. Oh. Well then, yes, that's true, um, but you know there there isn't a place that's more ripe ripe for KPIs than incentive comp is, um, and we see companies again still struggling to choose the right ones. And I think it goes back to what we were saying earlier: is you know how you know how are companies you know with all of this data, how are companies selecting the right KPIs? that ultimately performance against them have an impact. All right. That's some terrific conversation. I appreciate everybody's thoughts. Um, let me keep us moving here. Our last topic is a big one. Um, preparing for 2023. <laughs> <laughs> From your perspectives, what should companies be doing to prepare for 2023? Jim, do you want to start us out this time? Sure. Um, I'd be happy to. So, you know, 2023 um, is going to be a, 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 an interesting year. I think we're all expecting that uh, 2023 will, will start to present some challenges for us. I think that we've noticed a couple of trends in incentive comp that we're certainly cautioning our network to, um, to pay close attention to. One of them is uh, the the uh, the continued compression of earnings, the difference between top and bottom performers, um, that has continued to follow a trend where the difference between top performers and bottom performers has gotten narrower and narrower, um, and it's really becoming at the expense of top performers earning less. Um, that's an important. That's an important. Um, an important metric for our for our company for companies to understand um, as it relates to 
retaining talent. So uh, the thing that I would encourage companies to do, in addition to checkpointing their target pay to make sure that they've kept pace with the re- with the rapid change we've seen over the last 18 months, um, is really to look at their performance distributions and their payout distributions and make sure it is in line with what they're expecting. We see too many companies that don't have a point of view as to what that should be and don't ultimately measure it and then express surprise that they're having a difficult time retaining their top talent. Um, So if I could tell our network to do two things, it would be those two things. Checkpoint your, uh, your target pay for incentive comp and develop a point of view on what you should be paying top performers and bottom performers and measure that on an ongoing uh, basis. Jim, I will, I will second your, your comments around retaining. That was the, that was the, the consensus in, in with senior leaders in commercial ops. The labor market has shifted. Um, pharma is experiencing that as well. Um, retaining the talent that companies have is utmost on their, on their list to maintain that. But also it's finding those individuals that that have the skill set to move these functional capabilities forward, whether it's in analytics, whether it's in digital, whether it's in data and creating data strategies, retaining really good people um, is on the is on the forefront of their minds. But also, how do they begin to elevate the skill sets of the people that they're bringing in, um, and elevate the skill set of the folks that they have in place? So I I, I can't emphasize that enough. Your point is solid around retaining but also it's enhancing talent to support the business and where the business model has gone. And I'm going to take a totally different view of where I think things are moving. If I had a crystal ball and I'm thinking about field operations, I think we are at least trying to get to simpler CRM systems. We have so many metrics and data and just just information that we're not using. And right now, it's just a bit of an overload, even down to what are the steps that a field member needs to put in to put a call into the system. It has to take a step back and become simple so we can help the salespeople do what they're going to do, bring in efficiencies, but also close that access gap and um, grow build greater platforms that are easier to use. So I think there's a trend towards, yes, we're going to have more information out there, but what we're showing the field and what we're sharing is going to be simpler and easier to use. Brian, what about you? Yeah, so Kim, right along those lines, I would um, tend to agree data strategy is a place where organizations are going to, to need to put a lot of focus in 2023 and really thinking through How do they collaboratively talk across the organization of what's actually needed and how it's going to be used? And does it actually bring value? I think um, along those lines, the continued push towards data democratization. So making data available to more people within the organization, um, having better understanding of data capabilities and data understanding will be critical for, for many of the data management teams to push forward. But then I think it's also to, as the uh, definition of omni-channel starts to solidify and it starts to take on that broader sense of really not being just about non-personal promotion or the um, digital forms of communication, but the field engagement as well, um, making sure that the data management teams are there to help guide and drive adoption, use, and availability of information to support that. And then finally, 
you know, the last thing they need to start paying attention to is to start thinking through the use cases and the business needs that are being arisen from the push towards patient. So with omnichannel becoming such a critical component, we often talk about it being more about the engagement with the providers, but there's a lot more activity happening towards patient. And it's going to bring a whole new dynamics of what can and can't be done, how data needs to be managed, how they need to put in place better protections and controls in order to make data available and usable by different constituents within the organization who have very vast different needs from what they're going to be trying to measure and use data. So Gary, going back to your question, 2023 should be pretty straightforward for everyone. <laughs> and on that, on that perfect comment, Jim, um, let me sort of uh, wrap us up here because it looks like we're at just about at time. Um, great conversation. Let me just point out a few things that I learned today. So first and foremost, the commercial model continues to rapidly evolve. The, the, the evolution was probably also accelerated by COVID and the need to pivot to remote working as well as um, other channels to, to, to affect the business. New capabilities like next best action and evolving existing capabilities is critical to keep up in the, in the competitive world today in biopharma commercial. As always, you can't manage what you don't measure. So identifying the right metrics to focus on and not getting lost in the minutia is key. As we look out to 2023, retaining and motivating talent in a changing work environment will remain a challenge. Strengthening the collaboration between the business and operations will be key. A solid tech and data strategy is not only foundational, but now cost of entry to compete in the more complicated environment that we're in today. So thank you to my colleagues and thank you to our clients who opt to work with us year after year and participated in our most recent summit. Follow the link in the episode description to download Trinity Life Sciences Advisory Brief. What you need to know to be prepared for 2023. Highlights from TGAS Advisors Fall Summit to understand the data behind the insights based on our work with over 2,000 individuals across 300 partner companies and the key themes that emerged during the Fall Summit. Again, thank you to my colleagues and thank you to our clients.